Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. We are in verse, well, we're going to be in chapter 7, but let me read the end of chapter 6 just to make sure you remember and that I tied it up because I teach it three times and sometimes I don't. You're always the first one that gets it. I feel like I get better as I go. Sorry about it. You know, Tuesday night I think is better. Oh yeah. Tuesday night's better than Tuesday morning because I've already done it. Wednesday morning, I'm on a roll. I don't even have to look. I'm like, oh yeah, that didn't work. I need to correct that. You know, so you guys are my guinea pigs. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's true. And so I want to read the last section together uh, just a little bit to, so that we can get into chapter 7. But if you remember, I mean, this was a hard teaching. The bottom line is that Jesus is saying, listen, you're not understanding. The bread that came down from heaven was not given to you by Moses. It was given to you by my father. And let me remind you, your forefathers ate that manna in the wilderness and they still died. The true bread from heaven is me. That's what he's trying to tell them. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. And so just like the manna in the wilderness, they ate that, they had to take it in, and they had to metabolize it to live in the earthly world. You must then take me in for spiritual life. You must eat my body and drink my blood. Okay, it is an intimate relationship. It is application. It is metabolizing me. That is where true life will come from. A hard teaching, we know what happened. Many of them left. Um, Let me just read it to you. Chapter six, verse 60 says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Really? What I've said is offending you? Okay, let me tell you what's going to offend you. When you realize I am who I said I am, and one day I ascend back to where I came from. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's the same thing he said to Nicodemus. Physical births, physical. Spiritual births, spiritual. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's like, listen, what I am talking to you about is about the spirit. These words I'm talking to you are spiritual words. Quit getting stuck in the literal. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, unless it is spiritually discerned. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Yes, this is hard. This is a hard saying, but what I do know is you're God. And where else am I gonna receive the words of life? Even in the questioning that I might have inside, 
Where else would I go for the words of life? Because I'm thoroughly convinced that you are who you said you are. By believing in him, you would have life in his name. But this is interesting. It says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And then John adds the commentary. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was gonna betray him. What does that show you? Peter is speaking for the group. But Peter is unaware that when he says, we believe, where would we go? That there is actually one who does not. And it reminds us once again, that is Jesus who knows the hearts of men. I I remember someone saying one time, uh, we may be shocked who is in heaven and we might be shocked who's not, right? Not our job. We cannot see the heart of man, but he can. And so we go in to chapter seven. I love this. This happens every time I teach. Someone opens up their phone or their computer and the words start speaking. It never fails. I love it. Maybe I should just do it here. I just open it up and it can speak for us. Chapter seven, verse one. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. After these things, okay, refers to the events described in chapter six, all right? But the, what was described in chapter six was during what feast? You remember? Passover, okay? And now here we are gonna see in verse two, if you look ahead a little bit, now we're at a completely different feast. What is it? The Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles or Sukkot, okay, which actually means booths. And so what we're finding out is that between chapter six and between chapter seven, there is about a six-month gap, okay? But what he says after these things, John is referring back to what he's written about, which is in chapter six. So there has been a six-month gap. And John only describes this time as Jesus was walking in Galilee, okay? But remember, John has a purpose. And what is the purpose? These are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. He is writing a gospel that is not identical to the synoptic gospels. He's writing a different gospel with a purpose of showing you who Jesus is, that he is God, and by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So it's not a detailed biography of the life of Jesus. So there are six months that he doesn't include the details of what Jesus is doing. He just describes it as he was walking in Galilee. That doesn't mean that Jesus was doing nothing in those six months. He wasn't kicked back on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea with his 12 disciples just chilling, right? If you look back in the synoptic gospels, you will see that he was busy. Matthew 15 talks about it, 17 Mark chapter seven and eight, in that time, he was doing what he always did. He was teaching, he was healing, he was casting out demons, he fed the 4,000. But most of this time was spent discipling the 12. You will find in Matthew 16, 13 through 27, uh, Matthew 17, 19 through 23, and Matthew 18, one through 35. He is teaching and discipling the 12, including the first time telling of his death and resurrection. So let's look at some of that. Let's look at Matthew 16, 13 through 28. 
Oh, you're aware of this, right? Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Do you remember this scenario? I've taught you this several times. Caesarea Philippi was like Vegas on steroids, okay? It's where they worship the God Pan, the half man, half goat. You had the dancing goats. You had the temple up on the cliffs where all kinds of temple prostitution and orgies were happening. You had the cave that was there that the water flowed from that is literally called the gates of hell. And all this is not a place where good Jewish boys went, okay? It's where Roman soldiers begged to go on their furlough. And so here you have Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he then says, right? He, he basically says, on this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he, he tells them that. And the gates of hell, they're looking at it, right? Meaning the church is going on the offensive and nothing will be able to stop. What you see right now the, uh, the doors into demonic darkness, they don't stand a chance against the church. Don't stand a chance. So then, though, it goes on because it says in verse 21, 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This can never happen to you, Jesus. No way. I won't let this happen. No, this is not going to happen. And he says, You need to back up because the fact is, it will happen. The Messiah came to what? To die. And remember last time, we talked about the fact that that was something that they did not understand. This was blowing their mind and he was becoming a hindrance. And Jesus says, no, I won't be brought into that. Be gone, Satan, because this is why I came. And so he is telling them, he's discipling them. In Matthew 17, 22, it says, he again foretells of his death and resurrection. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll, he will be raised on the third day. So during this time of six months that he is still teaching and healing and casting out demons and he is feeding the 4,000, he is discipling his disciples. He wants them to understand that the time is coming when he will be handed over, he will be killed and on the third day, he will rise. Shows you, uh, I put, it's interesting that Jesus only spent two days with the large crowd and six months predominantly focusing on the 12. Jesus' primary focus was not on mass meetings, but on discipleship. What does Matthew 28 tell us? Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. Look at 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witness, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Discipleship. We're gonna talk about this a little more, but the bottom line, you will tell the strength of a church, in my opinion, uh, not based on the size of their congregation, 
but on the depth of their discipleship. It is about discipleship, um, growth, and, and learning. It says that he was unwilling to walk in Judea, okay? What does that mean? He was unwilling to conduct his life there at the moment. That's not where he was performing ministry. He remained in Galilee. Why? It says because they were seeking to kill him, all right? It says he was unwilling to do ministry there or to walk there, but it doesn't say he's unwilling to die. Don't get confused. He came to die, but he came to die based on a divine timetable. It says that he came to die, but everything was to be done according to the Father's timetable. John Calvin says this, although Christ avoided dangers, he did not turn aside a hair's breadth from the course of his duty. So before we really get into this chapter, starting in verse two, I want you to understand this is a big old long chapter, but I think it can be divided easily for you to handle, all right? And so one of the ways you could divide it is pretty simple. It is before the feast, the time before the feast, which is verses one through 10, It is the time during the feast, which is verses 11 through 39. And it is the time after the feast, which is verses 40 through 53. That's one way you can divide it. Another way is uh, how they responded to Jesus. Okay, so I also believe that you can split these up into disbelief, debate, and division. That's what we're going to see. And disbelief even involves his own brothers. And so there's disbelief, debate, and division. We'll we'll talk about those. All right, so verse 2. I'm going to read 2 through 5. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So this was the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. That happened in late September, early October. It lasted for a week, and it was one of the three pilgrimage uh, festivals. So what are those three festivals? Passover. Pentecost and Tabernacles, okay? So that you know. So if those were the three pilgrimage feasts where you were required to come into Jerusalem to observe these feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Um, I would love to be in, in Jerusalem during this time because this is what they did. D- do you understand? So they literally came in and they would build booths or like lean-tos or out of all of these branches, they would build it on their roofs or in their courtyards, in the streets, and they would basically go and live in those, remembering the time of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Can you imagine being a child during that time? We're going to go camping outside in the yard. Like what? It might not seem like it would be a whole lot of fun to you, but I cannot imagine how much fun they thought it would be. Matter of fact, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian said that of all the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyful. It was a time of festivity. 
Um, it was made with branches, okay? And specifically the branches at the top were to be spaced apart so that you could see the stars in the sky. And as you laid there with the children and you're looking at the stars and your kids are saying, what on earth are we doing this for, right? You can say, well, guess what? These same stars that we're looking at tonight, our ancestors looked at in the wilderness. And you begin to tell them the stories of how God provided for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. What an exciting thing. The entire thing was literally like a passion play acted out. One of the things that they did um, is that the temple area, the temple mount was completely illuminated. All right. They had giant uh, golden lampstands, giant, filled with oil, lit up at the temple to such an extent that I'll read you an excerpt from uh, the Talmud, but to such an extent that it says that every courtyard in Jerusalem got the glow of that. I mean, imagine, I don't know if you've ever been in Times Square, but you know what that's like. It's so lit up, you feel like you're standing in the daytime and it's night. So all of the glow, I mean, you think about how high that temple mount was and how opulent it was, and all of that light coming down through the streets in Jerusalem, and it just lit it up. And what did it remind them of? Well, think about it. They are out in booths, they're remembering the time in the wilderness, what led them during the time of the wilderness? The pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night. So here they are, they're like literally in a play, like acting this out with their children. They're out living for a week in these booths and looking at the stars and telling the stories and the whole place is lit up and every courtyard is feeling the light coming from the temple mount and they're telling stories about the provision of God. The other thing that happened is what they would call a water libation. Each day, the priests would get these golden vessels and they would travel from the Temple Mount all the way, if you've ever been in Jerusalem, you can picture this all the way down into the city of David to this, what is basically the Gion Spring, which is the water that feeds uh, Jerusalem. And right there at the Pool of Siloam, they would get the water and they would travel back with, I'm talking all kinds of celebration and instruments playing and singing and they'd be singing part of the Psalms and they're coming through the street and they bring this water and they pour it onto the bronze altar, the base, the rocks of the bronze altar. What does that remind you of in the wilderness wanderings? The water from the rock that God provided water. He was their provision. All of this being acted out and celebrated day after day. Can you imagine the kids that are waiting to see the next thing that is happening? And it says that even before all the lampstands, like all of these pious men that were the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders, they would sing and dance. I mean, they were letting loose. This was a day, these were days of celebration. And I think it's so amazing because there is something when we see like, have you ever seen the passion play? Or you see that and it just brings that fire back when you see the story acted out and you see things remembered. I think in some ways we've lost that just a little bit. I'm not gonna like say, oh, let's bring choirs back to church. Okay, this is not the, the subject. Choir versus 
praise team, whatever. But I will say this, back in the day, I grew up with choirs who did musicals and plays. And I will never forget to this day, Easter, they, uh, my parents were involved in a whole thing called Living Witnesses. I don't know if you ever saw it, but I mean, they dressed up in costume, they acted it out, they sang it out, and I'll, I'll just never forget it. I was a child and I can still remember lyrics of words that came out. I can still remember Jesus at the table with all of his disciples and Jesus, and let me tell you, Jesus at our church could sing. His, his name was Alan, and he would, he would start out, and he'd go, Remember me when I must leave you. It hurts me so that we must part. But just as we have remembered, remember these moments together. Remember remember. And I was just like, oh, remember. Okay. But they, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, but that's the point. Can you imagine what that was like to live through and to see that they remembered these things? They were literally acted out and it was such a jubilant time, but it would be a difficult time for Jesus. Because this festival would mark the beginning of open and militant opposition to him. Like I said, it was one of three of all the Jewish, one of three of all of the festivals that was a pilgrimage to where all Jewish men were required to show up. And so you have Jesus' brothers assuming that he would soon leave Galilee and go to Judea. Now, I want to point out to you that these are Jesus's half-brothers, okay? This is really important because we know that Jesus was an immaculate conception. His mother, right, Mary was a virgin. It is the virgin birth that is predicted in Isaiah 7. Why is that so important? It's really important, okay? Because the seed of man is corrupt with sin. You do not, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner by nature. Actually, in Genesis, it says that after sin, you know, Adam had children, but they were in his image. Now, he's still an image bearer of God, okay? But he passed on his fallen nature. And so because of that, mankind has sin. Their nature is sinful. That's why Paul says that Jesus, he refers to him as the second man because he was both man and divine. He was born of flesh, but not the seed of man. He had not been corrupt with sin. And because of that, he could die in your place. He could be your substitute, right? He was the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And only God could save you, but only man could take your place. He was both. So it's really important. Actually, Matthew, but after that, Matthew 13, 55 tells us that yes, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had normal relationships as a married couple and they had more kids. It says, um, Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
And are not all these sisters, all of his sisters with us? So I want you to understand that he had half brothers and sisters. Um, and, but right now we know they don't believe at this moment. Now they're gonna. How do I know that? Because I know the rest of the story, right? We know that James ended up becoming the, the elder, the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he was also the one that wrote the epistle or the letter James. And we know that his brother Judas, that was just talked to, what's a short version of Judas? Jude. And he wrote the epistle Jude. And so they will come to know Jesus as the Messiah, but it won't be until after the resurrection. So right now, they, they do not believe. It says, they said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also might see the works you're doing. So basically, this is kind of hilarious to me. So they're giving Jesus advice. They're making a suggestion, okay? Um, <laughs> they give him advice, and they're basically saying, if you really want to be the Messiah, you're going to have to emerge from this backwoods area of Galilee and take this road, uh, take this road to a much bigger stage. Um, go where the action is. In other words, if you are who you say you are, you're going to have to prove it. Possibly not just to everyone, but to who? But to them also. Um, why, why are they giving him this advice? Well, I mean, there could be a couple of reasons. Um, one, which I don't think is the reason, but maybe there's some sibling rivalry going on. I mean, can you imagine being the brother and sister of Jesus? How much fun is that? I mean, Jesus, he's so perfect. <laughs> Everything he does is perfect. You know, I mean, it's hard to be under uh, older siblings that are so awesome anyway. I mean, Hiller could get up here and tell you all kinds of stuff of how she's been damaged that <laughs> she had to live under Zachary. And she would say, and I know he weren't perfect. My parents just thought he was perfect, you know? So all of that. But in, in this case, he really was perfect, okay? But, and so it kind of brings back a little bit of reminiscent of Cain and Abel. When Cain says, and he calls Abel out the perfect one and, and kills him in the field. It's a little reminiscent of why the brothers uh, threw Joseph in a well, beat the crud out of him, had a sandwich and sold him into slavery. So you kind of have a little bit of that, but I don't really think that's the main reason. I think probably the reason is just like everybody else, his brothers believed that the Messiah was going to be a political leader. And so in their earthly advice, not believing who he was, truly, they're giving him the advice that if you're going to be the Messiah, how on earth do you think you're gonna be the Messiah if you don't take this trip and take this action to Jerusalem where the leadership is? Because if you're gonna get everyone behind you, it's gonna have to start here. The leaders are gonna have to sign off on you and they're gonna believe you. So you need to take what you're doing down here up there and just maybe they will get behind you and believe you. And just maybe if the rest of them do, we might too. And so I think to me, it sounds very similar to Matthew four, five through seven. 
if you truly are the Messiah, basically, they're saying, prove it. Sounds familiar. Took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you are who you say you are, prove it. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. He says, my time has not yet come. He would not allow his brother's skepticism to dictate his actions any more than he would the devil's temptation. He was here to do the will of the Father, to show the Father and his glory, not to gain his own, to fulfill all that the Father had said and to stick to the divine timetable that was from eternity's past. Jesus' divine time would not come into the next great feast, the Passover, the following spring. It says he would remain around Judea for the next six months, but he would not proclaim publicly and openly that he was the Messiah until the next Passover in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, when you see his triumphal entry as he enters into Jerusalem. And just as he had predicted, when he did that, what did that bring? His death. But now, now was not the time. He said, your time is always here. Why? Because you're of the world. The world doesn't hate you because you are the world. But the fact is, I'm not operating on the world's timeline. I'm on the Father's. I'm on a divine timeline that you have no understanding of. The world doesn't hate you because you're like them. The world hates me. And let me be clear, the world hates him. Have you noticed? They hate him. I don't see any other figure turned into a curse word. I mean, really. Uh, they hate him. Why is it that Christianity and Jesus in particular brings such outrage? I'm gonna tell you why. He says right here, I'm gonna tell you why. Because I testify that its works are evil. There is nothing the same in any other religion than the religion of Christianity. Because every other religion basically gives man a code that he can feel good about completing. Now, at the end of the day, each religion never gives you a plumb line as to how good you really have to be. But their whole scheme is that their God is on a mountain and you are working whatever code it is to find favor with God. And at the end of the day, you're just praying to that God, you've done enough that you will be accepted. Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity said, let me be clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You can't make it. Your nature is broken. It is impossible. 
And so the only way that you can make it is that our God, he doesn't sit on a mountain and give us a code to live by. He's like, you can't. I tried that. I showed you my nature and I showed it not because I ever thought you could, but I needed you to recognize yourself that you couldn't. So that when I came down off my mountain to save you, you would realize you needed a a sinner and you would rejoice because I have come down to pay your debt. But part of accepting that is is the humility to understand we cannot do it. We cannot. There is no one good, no, not one. Only God is good. And so the gospel starts with the humility, the repentance of the heart to know that we need a savior. And so he is saying, I am coming down to adamantly be against the world. It hates me right? And the light will shine and some will go back to the world and some will come and repent and know Jesus. But he's saying, you don't understand because you're of this world. They are giving him worldly advice and and maybe they're giving it to him uh, very well-meaning, but it's bad advice and he does not take it. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. So Jesus says, no, you go ahead without me. Think about this. What if he had gone with them? What kinds of things could have gone awry? I mean, now he's going into this festival in a very large group that gets noticed with his siblings. Are they watching for him? Yeah, we're gonna find out they're watching for him because they're going through the crowds at the Feast of Tabernacle going, where's Jesus, where's Jesus, where's Jesus? Not to mention, if they're going with this attitude and he has followers, could anything have happened to set off some kind of fake triumphal entry, putting him in a really big pickle. Absolutely. And so he doesn't take their advice because it's worldly advice. Psalms 1. I want you to look at that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Listen. It can be advice from your family that's well-meaning. But if it's not godly advice, thank you. You go right on ahead. I'll see you later. And that's, that's what he did. Um, let me ask you a question. Could Jesus' enemy have killed him at this time? No, because there was a divine timetable for that. Um, however, you don't want to court danger or tempt the Lord your God. Once again, reminiscent of the temptation, right? Because what does Jesus say? Get away from me, Satan. What? It is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. So in other words, don't do something that would cause a revolt. He doesn't tempt God. He remains on this timetable. Verses 10 through 13 or through 14 says this, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. By the way, when it says, I'm not going to this feast, do some of your Bibles say, I'm not going now? Okay, it's not like Jesus lied and then, you know, ended up going to the feast. He's like, no, I'm not going with you, okay? But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him amongst the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, who is that? So we have different groups of people here. The Jews represent who? The leadership, right? The, the Sanhedrin, basically. And then you have the public, okay, the crowd. So know the difference. So the leadership was looking for them, for him. And when, the, can't you picture them doing this? They're going all through the crowds. I mean, it's packed. What did I tell you? This is just an enormous celebration. There's people everywhere, joyous, but they're going around. They're, have you seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And when they do this, it's stirring up all kinds of muttering. Why are they looking for Jesus? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you think of him? Well, I think he's a good man. No, he's a con. And so you have all of this muttering that is taking place. He's a good man. He's a deceiver. Which of those is wrong? Y'all are scared. Both, okay? He's not a good man. He's God, okay? And no good man claims to be God. Do you understand that? Let that sink in. He is not a good man. He has never claimed to be. He's claimed to be over and over. Who's he claimed to be? God. So he can't be a good man because no good man claims to be God. He'd be a nutbag. All right? And then on the other side, some are saying he's a deceiver. Oh, really? No. In no way has he deceived the people. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, I am the truth. And matter of fact, at the end of his days, he was declared innocent by the one that ordered his death. He's like, I find no fault in him. Not one time did they ever find fault in his doctrine, in his behavior. And so how can he be the deceiver? Neither one of those are true. But it said that no one spoke openly because of fear of the Jews. I started laughing when I read that because whether or not you think you're right or wrong in these days, I kind of understand what they're feeling. How about you? I'm too scared to have a stinking opinion about anything. You know, I just mutter amongst my people because uh, <laughs> y'all know you do too, whatever. Um, but we're scared to like stand up and make a proclamation. Number one, I'm scared to do that because I don't think I ever have the correct uh, information to do so because I think it's all fake news and I never get the truth. And how can I ever make any kind of smart decision when I don't have the facts? That's one of my problems. And the other one is that we live in such a cancel culture that if I say something that ticks someone off, they just throw me away and nothing else I say they wanna hear. And so they're afraid they're afraid of the uh, establishment, and that is where they are. So they keep their mouths shut, but they mutter. Hmm. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. Now, of course, y'all know I was kind of being political there for a minute, but we're talking about Scripture, having the ability to speak up for the truth of God. That's a whole nother, nother situation. But Proverbs 29, 27, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. Galatians 1, Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, right? The whole idea of I have an audience of 
one. I have an audience of one. Fear of God frees you from the snare that is caused from the fear of man. Fear of God frees you from the snare that comes from the fear of man. I love this. I don't remember where I heard it or I would give the person credit, but it says, if you can get on your face before God, you can get on your feet before any man. Boy, I wish it were that easy. If you think for one minute, I have not been in situations where I am scared out of my mind, you crazy. We get intimidated. We get intimidated by people who are more scholarly. We get intimidated by people with a lot of letters behind their name. We get intimidated by maybe even a culture or a gender bias or whatever it is. We can fear men. We can fear uh, not getting the approval of men. I can tell you that I'm actually even facing this right now. And you're like, with us? No, girl, I'm not facing this right now with y'all. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I get up here and I worry about the opinion because I think, oh, this week was so hard and I just didn't get it. It's not gonna be as good and what are the, and, but that's, that, that's just me being me, okay? But there are times, like I'll give you an example uh, so I'm going to be the Mother's Day speaker at CCV, okay? Now, yeah, that's exciting, but it's going to be hard for me. It's going to be the first Mother's Day without Zach. It's going to be a week before the year anniversary of his death. It's going to be hard. I'm going into a massive group of people, um, a lot of who love me. It's not that but I, I want to reach them. I feel the pressure of an opportunity for a woman to speak there to women on Mother's Day. I feel that. But you'd be crazy if you think that I don't always feel a little bit, oh man, you know, I'm not Mark Moore. I'm not Ashley Wildridge. I, oh, oh, if I could be as humble as this one. Oh, if I could be as smart as this one. Or if I could be Dave Stone and tell a story that makes you want to cry. Oh, and then you're going, Shannon, what are you doing? Be Shannon. That's, be me, be me. I go over my, my sermon. I'm like, ooh, I don't think that's politically correct. I don't think I can say that. Like you sit and analyze worry because in this culture, we do have to worry about some things. I have a joke that I use, okay, in, that, in the message that I'm gonna use on Hannah where I talk about the fact, well, I'm romantic and I talk about Hallmark movies and I say, you know, come on girls, uh, don't we know there ain't a man alive like the Hallmark man. He's make-believe. The reason we like him is because they've made him a woman. And then all my... All my women laugh. I can't say that there. In this transgender world, I will get demolished, okay? So y'all laugh, but do you understand the pressure that is on? Because the minute you step out and you step into something, now you're back analyzing every little thing that you are saying. And there's a lot of pressure when you're on that kind of stage. There are some jokes I'm gonna go for anyway. You know, because that's who I am and I'm not gonna kowtow to, you know, nothing like that one, that one's bad. But, <laughs> but when you're in an audience of women, we know what I mean and it's not a big deal. But you analyze, oh, well, what if they hate me? What if that, and what can happen is you wait, wait a minute, Shannon. You have an audience of one. 
you go and you do your thing and you humbly walk before the Lord and you preach it and you walk out and you love on people and then you don't listen to what anybody says about you. That's just the way it works in this deal. But I don't want you to think that when I just flippantly say, if you can fall on your face before God, then you can stand before any person. And I just do that so well. And I just don't ever worry about it. Are you kidding me? We all have a tendency to fear man. And that fear, though, is a trap. And we have to recognize it. And so... In verse 14, it says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So by the way, y'all better be there on Mother's Day and you better be sitting in the front row (laughs) so I can see your faces. And every now and then when you look at me, go, okay, come on. Uh, So Jesus shows up. He shows up about the middle of the festival and it says that he goes into the temple and teaches. And more than likely, he goes into the one of the two courtyards there. You've got these uh, courtyards of, you've got the courtyard of Solomon. You've got the courtyard that's called the Royal Courtyard. It was a place that you could gather. It's a place that was shaded. And by the way, that's important because the sun there is very much like the sun in Phoenix, Arizona. And so it was a beautiful place to go and sit down to teach. Uh, Very often rabbis and teachers would come through and that was a place where people would gather to learn. And so most of the time when Jesus and his disciples would come in, they would find a ready audience, ready to sit down and learn. And that's what he does. It says that he begins to teach. So I don't view this as he's not trying to gain attention here. He's coming in and he's sitting in the shade and he does what he does. He teaches. He's probably teaching his disciples. Then someone hears. Have you ever realized how that can happen? And now it's kind of gaining an audience and he teaches. I want you to understand the difference. But Jesus did three things. He preached, he teached, he taught, and he healed, okay? uh, Preaching is the word, it's proclaim, it's proclamation. The way I see it is when you preach, You're proclaiming a truth about God in order for people to believe and enter into the kingdom, okay? Teaching is when that has happened, you then to begin to teach them. You teach them doctrine, you're educating them. Um, One, it can be way more exciting than the other. If you've ever heard a good preacher preach, girl, Like, I've heard some good ones where you're like, I forgot what that sounded like, okay? And that is so good because you're like, yes, preach it. It's like, I don't know. It's like it came from his guts and it just came out. And and it's exciting because people respond. There's usually an immediate response. They may come down the aisles. Uh, Some of y'all are like, what's that? Because we don't have invitations anymore. But they come down the aisles and it's exciting. Teaching is It's not as immediate, it's slow, but it brings a long-term result. And so it's kind of like the the stages in building a home, right? Remember when you built your first home and all of a sudden they got the foundation and the walls up? Ah, It's a home, I'm so excited. And you walk through it, you took pictures by the framing. And then after that, to get the home finished, took forever, right? Because it was all the detail that was putting it together as a home. It's kind of like that. Now, 
I'm going to tell you, teaching is so necessary. Proclamation brings the foundation. Teaching brings the maturity. And we need that kind of teaching. Um, it's actually what I do here. It is the verse by verse, the chapter by chapter, the studying it. And to be quite honest, it wouldn't matter if I did it for a living or not. I would just do it because that's what I do. I could have a normal job and I would teach. I can picture him sitting there teaching. I wish I had been there because I can imagine the looks on their faces as they learned. I, I today still meet with young people in like a mentoring role because I don't teach massive college or high school anymore. But there is nothing that thrills my heart than to sit down and start teaching the stories of the Bible and seeing their eyes go, are you kidding me? <gasps> when I start putting it together for them so that they understand, and I said, do you, do you understand? Do you see how awesome this is? Do you see why we hold on to this? And I'm teaching and they're loving. I'm in my happy place when I am right there. The other day I was with um, uh, playing golf and I was with some people and and lo and behold, we're eating dinner and something comes up about the Bible. I don't even really remember what it is. And my friend looked at me and I started to explain something. And the man sitting across the table, my friend goes, he could not take his eyes off of you teaching. And he goes, I even tested it, Shannon. I tested it. I interrupted you and I asked him a question. I just wanted to see, like, is he just sitting here being nice because you're, you're talking. He said he answered my question and he went right back to you. And you, you had him. He wanted more and more and more. I think we'd be surprised how many people want more and more and more. Preaching is awesome. It brings people in. It brings them into the kingdom. But we have to have teaching. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be hard-pressed, in my opinion, to find a church who does all of it perfectly. You won't. You are responsible for your individual growth. Do you know what all's out there? I mean, there's so much material out there for you to study and podcasts to listen to and teachings to watch online. We really don't have an excuse. Don't go in and start thinking, well, at my church, all they do is preach. It's about this deep and they don't teach anything. Or at my church, all they do is teach. We need some preaching. People need to get saved. I, listen, all of that is, a, it's your responsibility to growth and to, and to bring that fount, you know, the, all the details to that foundation. But that is what he did. He sat down and he taught and it blew their mind. I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna try to find a place to stop. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is this man, wait, how is it this man has learning? Do, do any of yours say no letters? Okay, that, that's talking about learning, understanding the scriptures, breaking it down, okay? How does this man have learning when he has never studied? <laughs> I love that. How does this guy know so much? How does he know letters having never studied? How does this person know so much stuff without going to seminary? How does this person know all of these things without having the following letters behind her name. Like, what are the credentials? 
How does he know so much stuff? So they're not saying that Jesus wasn't educated. But what they're saying is he did not go to one of their accredited schools. Okay? In Jerusalem at that time, there were 30 basically what they called yeshivas or schools of learning. You would study under certain rabbis or teachers like Gamaliel and, and all of them and where they would learn the Torah and they would learn the Talmud and the, the wisdom writings. But the bottom line is Jesus didn't go. How did he learn all this without us giving it to him? I think that's so funny. I could go off on a tangent, but I'm not. What do you understand? That they could not question his doctrine, so they questioned his credentials. They couldn't question what he was saying, so they began to question, attack him. How does he have the right to say what he's saying? Because they couldn't prove what he was saying is wrong, and so they go after his credentials. And the bottom line, what they're saying is in that day, in the schools, based on where you studied, what they would say, they would base it on the authority of someone else who was known as a credential for what they were saying. It's kind of like me giving um, kudos to a quote or somebody that, you know, in a, in a commentary. And so they're saying, so by what authority does he speak? Listen to his answer, and this will be it. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I'm not here. I'm not self-taught. I'm God-taught. So basically what he does is he says, so let's get back to doctrine. And he then finishes out. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. We'll start there next week because that's a very confusing statement if you look at it. But I believe it goes back to the tie of chapter five where we realized that the reason they could not see what was plain in front of their face because everything witnessed what he was saying. He's like, you won't take my own testimony. You won't take John the Baptist's testimony. The father has given his testimony, how? Miracles and the scripture. And the bottom line is you're just stinking unwilling. And because you're unwilling, you cannot see. So here is the question to think about as we depart. Do you want to do God's will? Are you willing? It seems most want to know the will of God first, and then they'll decide if they're willing. The closing quote for today, and I'll go back over this next week. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, 95% of knowing the will of God is being willing to do it before you know what it is. It is about humility. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for your scripture. Lord, remind us every day that we have an audience of one. We have an audience of one. And that if we are so worried nonstop about what other people think, about the approval of men, it's just going to be a trap. We're going to be imprisoned by that, constantly imprisoned about other people's opinion. But God, when we have the fear of you, when we only care about uh, bowing the knee to you and having your approval, that will free us from the prison of 
considering what everyone else thinks of us. So God, may we stand true in our learning and especially, Lord, may we learn. May we study and build on the foundation of our salvation by learning your scriptures to know who you are. So God, I thank you for this opportunity that we've been given to study your word. I thank you for the privilege of it. And I thank you that, you know what? It's not my word, it's your word. And so help me to always be true to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.